I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. My guest today is Ruthanna Emrys. She's the author of several short story collections and novels, including the award-nominated book Winter Tide. Her latest book is A Half-Built Garden. It's a delightful and hopeful story of first contact with aliens, motherhood and family, living in a post-climate change world, and the role that individuals play in repairing the world around them. It's one of my favorite books of the last year. Ruthanna, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me on. Delighted to be here. This book is, in many ways, a very anti-apocalypse kind of post-apocalyptic book. The world has definitely changed from what we know now. And I imagine that things were probably pretty bad at one point. But in your novel, people are well along the path of rebuilding and living their lives. Did you deliberately set out to write this kinder gentler post-apocalyptic book? Honestly, yes. Not so much post-apocalyptic as that I wanted to write a positive future that seemed like there might be a route from where we are to where they are. You see so much dystopia, so much hopelessness about all of the existential threats that we face as a species. And I wanted to you know, lay out a piece of the map out where he forges seen dragons. <sighs> I, I love that because I think that's a lot of the fiction that I'm gravitating to is the Becky Chambers and it's going to be, you know, this book, which I really, really loved. But I am curious about this world because those connections between our current earth and the earth that you write about in this book, um, those connections are really clear. In your world building, do you think that your earth in this book actually went through some sort of apocalypse or is it just that kind of boiling slowly by degrees event? depends on your definition of apocalypse. You could certainly give some definitions of apocalypse that says that we're in a slow one right now. I don't think that the world of a half-built garden hits any point where you would say, yes, definitely, this is the day that the asteroid hits. But I think that they've been through and are still going through a lot of extreme weather. They have dealt with fascism. They've dealt with uh, aspects of capitalism that prioritize profit over everything else, including the survival of the species and the well-being of communities. And they have started to do something uh, about all of those things. Um, but if you come from a place that you even think of as utopian, as the aliens think of their own lives, although we could certainly argue with that, then you would look at them struggling with storms and struggling with resource scarcity and say, these people have an apocalypse going on. Why aren't they acting? Why aren't they running around and screaming and shouting? 
Exactly. There was very little screaming for the most part, which is actually really nice. I was trying to like write down, oh, what's the central theme of this book? And I think I've got like up to seven of them um, because there's just so many beautiful layers with this. And one of those that this is in many ways also a first contact book. And I love that we have this first contact situation with aliens and nobody immediately starts shooting. You know, there's definitely tension and conflict, but it's all done within this framework of communication and understanding each other as totally different species. And I'm I'm curious, was that harder, do you think, to write than your typical Independence Day kind of let's just shoot up the aliens kind of story? Not for me. I I don't find fight scenes very interesting to write. I'm not against them, but I am absolutely sympathetic to the point where Tolkien just left out a fight scene between books and summarized the fight scene he never wrote in the story so far of the next book. For me, the interesting thing about First Contact, which has always been one of my favorite subgenres, is the challenge of communication. And the questions of we have so much trouble communicating with each other as humans, how do we communicate with someone who has even less shared context? And to me, that's where the fun is. And that's where the interesting issues are, because humans can shoot at each other. (laughs) It's also really fun that the first contact um, Earth, the human uh, woman by the name of Judy Wallach Stevens, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, this was a really accidental first contact situation. Talk about that a little bit, because I think that was a little bit different too. I have a lot of false starts on first contact stories in my files where someone who is, you know, high in the government, able to reach the president, has a lot of power, gets to talk to aliens. And it very quickly turns into the sort of cast of thousands that I think can pull the spotlight away from individual emotions and development and even of the quieter sort of community development that can be so interesting in books. I also, when I was writing this, I may have young kids. Uh, They take up a lot of time and energy. Uh, They distract from writing, but they also uh, influence it. And one of the things that I find frustrating as a reader is that so often if you have parents in genre work at all, their parenthood is a barrier to getting to the the excitement to getting to the adventure. Uh, So I wanted to write a book about parents having adventures where their parenting was an integral part of the adventure. And so the the first person to run across the aliens happens to have her baby strapped to her chest. And it turns out that 
for the aliens. One of the ways you demonstrate that you are a worthwhile authority is that you uh, have kids with you and you show that you have parented, which in their culture requires that you have done a lot to gain the status required to parent. So the first person who shows up looks to them like a very natural authority. And then when the more traditional human authorities show up, they show up without kids. And by that point, the aliens are insisting, no, no, this random person who was trying to look at the water chemistry has to be leading the human side of the delegation. And then she's stuck with it. And so it gets to be a bit of a fish out of water story, but it also gets to be a story uh, about negotiating different ways of creating authority and having the right to represent your people. And it also gets to be a story in which human and alien babies uh, play with blocks on the floor together. I love it. I, I also love the way that you explore family dynamics and in your story, they've shifted, you know, maybe from what we see as the default today. It does strike me that this is the kind of change that we're starting to see take root in America. And we already certainly see it in other cultures that raising a family is more than just a one or two person job. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what your intent was in the kind of social dynamic situations that you created in the family dynamic situations that you created with the book. I do think that the uh, nuclear family is a very weird historical fluke that hasn't been around for very long and is not especially stable. Uh, my hats are off to people who can raise kids with two or one adult around. Uh, I live in a group household that is fundamentally a college role-playing group that decided to raise kids together. We have the kids outnumbered and uh, that is how I get to do things like take time out of my afternoon to do book interviews. So I wanted to write a world where different sorts of taking a village to raise a child were becoming more common and that it wasn't always the same way. I also wanted to address a lot of times we tell other parents about the way we're doing things and they say, oh, I wish I could do that, but I have no idea how I would get all the people together. And, you know, we, we had a college role playing group. Not everyone does or uh, wants to have that kind of relationship with their game master. So I also took the uh, old Jewish custom of having a matchmaker and said, okay, what if we're using a matchmaker to help people get these group households together? And then what are the conflicts that arise from people who maybe got together in a hurry when they were starting to have kids and they were introduced by a matchmaker and now they have to figure out what their dynamic is going to be? <laughs> I think it was just the perfect subtext for the big story of, you know, you're meeting aliens and you're communicating and dealing with what they really are on earth to do. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But at the same time, you still have to change diapers. You still have to feed your kids. You still have to communicate with your housemates about what's going on. Um, and, and those 
two dualities in the book, I think really helped make it what it is in, in many ways. So no real question there, just I really loved it. Thank you. And it's one of the points that I think about, you know, parenting in political times, which the times are always political. And, you know, I have the experience of how politics and parenting aren't entirely separate, but also you have to negotiate who's going to stay home and who's going to go out to the march. And I wanted to reflect that on a bit of grander scale. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about your aliens, I love how alien they are. They're not, you know, humans with bumpy poor foreheads or walking around on two feet like everybody else. I imagine that there was a whole level of world building and thought that had to go into why they look the way they look. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Uh, Sure. Uh, So first, I should say I am a cognitive psychologist by training. So I have a lot of, you know, scientific thinking behind the cognition of the aliens and for that matter, the humans uh, when it comes to the biology that isn't the neurobiology, then it's, you know, much rougher and just fundamentally that I did want to make sure that they weren't humans with bumpy foreheads. My previous two books uh, were deconstruction of H.P. Lovecraft. And so I got to use aliens that Lovecraft created. And Lovecraft had huge, huge problems, many of which I was addressing in the Innsmouth Legacy books, but he also was really good at making aliens who were absolutely positively nothing like humans. And so I felt that when I was creating my own aliens, I had something of a bar that I needed to clear in terms of making sure that they were at least as weird as, you know, yith or great old ones. Um, So I also wanted to have aliens that humans could have relationships with. Um, I, you know, I always find relationship building more interesting than not. And I also wanted to like you said, have them not be something that could just be played with a prosthetic on Star Trek. So I have two sets of aliens. Uh, One group looks a little bit like giant spiders with no heads. They would argue with that and point out that they have... uh, they are not invertebrates and so on. But I did want to play with having something that would sort of set off human phobia responses and humans would have to deal with that. Uh, the, The Plains folk, I adapted a little bit from an Escher print of these sort of roly-poly creatures that curl up around themselves and roll around and So that's where the basic body plans came from. And I just sort of played around with it from there. I think roly-polies were my favorite bug as a kid. So definitely a fan. The relationship that these people have with the aliens, they seem to just kind of roll with it rather easily. 
Do you think you'd be able to adapt that quickly if you had the same encounter? Sure. It would probably depend on the the specific aliens and, you know, judging from my experience with humans, uh, whether they were willing to take their turn in the kitchen and which way they thought toilet paper rolls ought to go. <laughs> so I think in some ways the, the differences can be relatively easy to negotiate because you see them there and you know what to do with them. And as long as you have some shared agreements about principles, that's something you can work around. But I suspect that if I were writing uh, a sequel, or at least a sequel that my wife wants, a lot of it would be the arguments over the little things and the assumptions that no one realized that people had different when they started out. <laughs> One of the uh, themes that is central to this book, I know we've talked about a couple of others, is this idea of owning your mistakes and fixing what you've broken. And this really ties into what becomes the central conflict. What about that idea intrigued you? It's one of the ways that I think the book is very Jewish, which is, in fact, a thing that I was trying to do. This is the first book that I've written where most of the human characters are Jewish. And the idea of tikkun alum is one of the central pieces of my own ethics. And it means the repair of the world, the idea that we have this huge project of making the world a better place, much of which is fixing the ways that we've made it a worse place, and that it's a project of generations and something that you owe both to the past and the future generations. And so I was trying to write humans who were thinking about that and then aliens who would agree that you have things that you owe to past and future generations, but disagree about what it is that's owed. Mm -hmm. And I know we've talked about the the climate change issues that are a part of this book. And I had to I have to say that it didn't feel like that this was a far future kind of setting. It actually felt a little closer to now than is comfortable. And the mitigation strategies that you write about, the way just about the entire planet is focused on things like reducing resource use. They're using technology in good ways for communication. Do you think that that's possible in our time? It's possible. I think it requires us to make a lot of decisions differently from the way that we're doing now. But, you know, if you look at history, there are times when we make decisions that are surprisingly and abruptly different from the ones that we've made previously. Um, and the communication technologies, the ways of decision making, those are the things that I wrote that really do have a basis in what we have now. A lot of what I was drawing from was citizen science and crowdsourcing projects that I've seen people use to better understand and make decisions about their local environments. So I, I think it's possible. I think it's something where we need to do the work and make the decisions. But I also think that broader than those specific technologies, we do need to think about how can we use technology to help us make better rather than worse decisions, because that is an area 
where I think we underestimate the ability of social technologies to make a difference in our social interactions. And I think that that's one of the things I found really um, compelling about this book is too often when you get into climate change fiction, it's it's kind of like technology falls off the table. We get again to, to that dystopian type setting. And I really liked that technology was a tool for good in this way. But then you also have these different nation states that exist and you have what is essentially um, the corporation side of things, which I thought was a really interesting approach. Tell us a little bit uh, about that. About the corporations? Yeah, because I mean, you have corporations, which you want to say are going to be very focused on profits, very focused on expansion and very conservative which they are focused on the profits and the expansion, yes, but socially they've changed so much. Yes, and I, you know, I think that corporations like like governments could, you know, pick up the slack and do more and better for the planet than they're doing now. Uh, a little of what I was doing in the book was saying, you know, if the existing organizations don't do this, then someone else has got to do it. But, you know, on the government side, I, I live in the DC suburbs. I'm a Beltway person. I absolutely love the way that people in the executive agencies work. I would say tirelessly, except that they're all very, very tired to try and solve problems within the limits that they have been given. And, you know, the NASA people who show up and are absolutely determined to do something with first contact, despite the fact that they're technically still waiting for permission from Congress are kind of a love letter to that sort of thing. And the corporations, um, that in the book have been exiled to these artificial islands are, you know, fundamentally they're, they're the people who wouldn't place planet over profit and the places that would have gotten integrated into the, the watersheds and the dandelion networks. But the, the people who get referred to as the corporations by uh, Judy and her family are fundamentally you know, billionaire CEOs who went and hid out somewhere because they didn't expect to or want to have the world as a whole avoid the worst of climate change, and they wanted to get themselves out of the way. And they've been, you know, sort of partying there and wondering if it's time to come back and take the world back ever since. The aliens arrive on Earth because they want to save humanity, they've actually um, tried to help other civilizations and have arrived there too late. Their idea of saving humanity, though, is to remove everyone from the planet and basically take them back to their home on these space habitats that they've built. And some groups want to leave Earth, others want to stay and continue the work of healing the planet. Which choice would you choose? Kind of like the idea of both. Um, I am with some of the people in the book who say that if in practice, especially if you don't have aliens showing up, you're going to leave the planet, 
this is the easy mode. This is the place where we've started with a working biosphere. And especially, you know, in the larger science fiction conversation, you have so many people who think, well, if we use up Earth, we can go to Mars. It's easier to terraform Mars than to make Earth stay habitable. So I think that, you know, other planets are something that we are going to be able to get and do well at when we get really good at this one. And I don't think we're yet at the point where we could expect to, you know, build space habitats and have them be as or more livable than what we've got in the damaged planet that we have right now. I know that you mentioned your earlier books um, very heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft. Was there any kind of influence in particular for this book? Uh, not one specific, but it was in conversation with there are a lot of books coming out over the last few years that are thinking about the future of governance and what different governments look like. Uh, Malka Older's Infomocracy series, which is uh, about uh, the world being broken up into micro-democracies that are sort of watched over by this overarching uh, fact-checking organization with swords, which uh, was a lot of fun and, uh, then Ada Palmer's Terra Ignota books mm. were uh, another big influence. Uh, but in general, I was thinking about, you know, all these ways of thinking about the world having transitioned to a new form of governance. And at the same time, about the fact that Often when we see huge changes, there are still pieces of the old world around. You know, we, we have democracy now, but the divine right of kings has not actually gone away. And you still see people, you know, talk about the presidency in ways that reflect older ways of thinking uh, about authority. Um, you, you still see struggles between older and newer forms of governance. And so I wanted to write a world, a future that had that sort of incomplete transition and those sorts of leftovers from older authorities and, you know, to take this huge world-shaking event and see how everyone responded to that, whether seeing it as an opportunity to do something new with what they already have in terms of power or an opportunity to regain power or an opportunity to change how power is used entirely. Well, I love the book and I love talking with you today. Ravana, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. A Half-Built Garden by Ruthanna Emrys is available now. You can find out more at WSKG.org. Click on Your Public Radio and click on Off the Page. 
Off the Page doesn't happen without the support of people just like you. If you're a fan of the kind of in-depth interviews and conversations about books and writing that you find on Off the Page, then please consider making a donation. The amount is entirely up to you. That's not the important part. The important part is that you as a listener of the program, are helping make sure that it happens. You can donate today online at wskg.org. Just click on the red donate button. Coming up over the next few weeks on Off the Page, I have conversations with Ithaca author Jennifer Savron Kelly about her new book and papers. It's a beautiful and somewhat heartbreaking book about identity and self-discovery and in learning more about the past in order to understand where you come from. I've also got interviews coming up with Jake Biddle about climate displacement, Francois Malby Anthony about the beautiful elephants of Tula Tula, and I'll chat with one of the grand masters of science fiction, Connie Willis. If you like alien conspiracy theories and Roswell, you'll love her new book. Off the Page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Saragas. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go Off the Page. Mm-hmm.